Shabbat Shalom. Last week, we really began to dig into just how deceptive our adversary, the devil, Hasatan, can really be to the point that the Apostle Paul, he actually reveals something very troubling to us. That when the devil comes, when Hasatan comes, he presents himself not as an angel of darkness, he presents himself as an angel of light. And that is a real problem because we're actually told that God, Elohim, is light. Read First John. And so as he's coming, who is he presenting himself as? He's presenting himself as the authentic one, the living God to come. And think about this. If it were to end there, that would be troubling enough. But now we know that he sends out his ministers, those who work on his behalf, his agents to build his kingdom. He sends out his ministers as ministers of righteousness. And what do these men do? These men go forth and they bring forth a message of hope, a message of love. They talk about freedom and grace and mercy. These are the things that they talk about. They profess their faith in Yeshua. You think about this. Think about the deception involved. Everything that they have to say, it sounds so good. It sounds so right. But it is as the old proverb says. There's a way that seems right to man, but its end is the way of death. That's exactly what these men bring. That's what Paul was warning us about. These men are bringers of death. They portray themselves to be bringers of hope, bringers of salvation, but they are sowing death and they are destroying entire communities. Yeshua says, wolves in sheep's clothing. Going back to Acts 20, Paul says, they will not spare the flock. Every last one of them will die if these people are not identified. There'll be none left. Today, I want to continue to build upon this frightening reality. And we're going to dig into scripture even further, uh, seeking to have those tools, necessary tools to be able to make that identification. When I'm looking at two two men, and they look identical to me, they're virtually indistinguishable. They're saying the same things. They appear to be doing the same things. I need to have the tools to know that one of them is actually an imposter. He is a false prophet. He's a false teacher. He's a false pastor, false preacher. Whatever the case may be, we need to have these tools. And so we're going to get these tools today. We're going to get to see the very core of it all. Last week, if you remember, we looked at a tale of two prophets, right? In 1 Kings. Well, we are, once again, we're going to look at a tale of two prophets. And uh, as we look at this story, we're going to get to see the markings of what a false prophet or false teacher and so on and so forth. We're going to see the markings of what identifies them as a false prophet. This is critical. The information we're going to cover today, it is very critical. And you know what? It doesn't matter what generation a false prophet lived in. It doesn't matter what continent they came from. I'm going to tell you this. They all, every single one, going back to the beginning to today, they all possess a common denominator. One particular thing. And it's that one thing we're after. It's that one thing you need to know. You'll be able to spot them. You'll have the tools to test them. Very powerful. With that said, I want to open up today by taking you to the book of Jeremiah, Yirmiyahu. 
And I want to set the stage before we get into the actual tale of the two prophets. So we're going to go to 27. And, uh, oh boy, here we go. All right, 27, verse 1. In the beginning of the reign of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, the king of Judah, this word came to Jeremiah from the Lord saying, Thus says the Lord to me, Make for yourselves bonds and yokes and put them on your neck. You know, you look at this, what the Lord's commanding Jeremiah, what a peculiar thing. What a peculiar thing to ask him to do. Make, make yokes, put it on your neck. Like, that's what you put on an animal, right? And bonds, why is he asking him to do this? The answer to that is, Yehovah is bringing judgment upon the entire world, if you will. He is putting the entire world under the authority of the king of Babylon. Now, this is very important. And this is why you're seeing it actually on Jeremiah's neck. That did not exclude his own people, the Jewish people. They were to come under that power and authority. All right? So Jeremiah, being a God-fearing man, he does what he is instructed. But not just that. If you were to continue on in the passage, we discover that the Lord commands him something else. And he says, notify the nations. Notify my people. This is coming. I will raise Nebuchadnezzar up and you will submit your necks under his authority. And if you don't, well, then we read this going to verse eight. And it shall be that the nation and kingdom, which will not serve Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, and which will not put its neck under the yoke of the king of Babylon, that nation I will punish, says the Lord, with the sword, the famine and the pestilence until I have consumed them by his hand. Really simple. You do not listen to the Lord. You do not submit to this, which put your, try to wrap your mind around this. If you're a Jew, if you're living in a godly kingdom and a kingdom that is established by God himself, that we're supposed to submit to a pagan king coming in. Try to, try to imagine that, what he's saying. And the Lord warns, you don't do this, you are going to die. And that goes for all the nations. Well, listen to what he goes on to say, because the Lord, being the Lord, knows things before they happen. He knows the beginning from the end, right? Isaiah 46 declares it. Therefore, do not listen to your prophets. Now, it's this reference to, obviously, Judea and the prophets of God. Your diviners, your dreamers, your soothsayers. Now, remember, this is going out to all the nations. How are the nations established? Where do they seek counsel? They seek it from the soothsayers, from the diviners. And your sorcerers who speak to you, what does he say? You shall not serve the king of Babylon, for they prophesy a lie to you, to remove you far from the land, and I will drive you out, and you will perish. What an awesome warning. The Lord warns, guess what, people? I told you to submit yourselves, but I know how the nations, and I know how Judea will react. They're going to rise up men, they're men, they're prophets, they're sorcerers, they're soothsayers. They're going to rise up and they'll say, no, no, no. We don't have to submit to the king of Babylon. We don't have to do that. This is our context. So with this information, we'll dig into our story today. In Jeremiah 28, verse 1, we read this. And it happened in the same year, at the beginning of the reign of Zedekiah, king of Yehuda, In the fourth year and in the fifth month, what does this say? That Hananiah, or Hananiah in the Hebrew, son of Azur, Hanavi, the prophet, who was from Gibeon, spoke to me, meaning Jeremiah, 
in the house of the Lord, in the presence of the priest and all the people. And this is interesting because here we're introduced to Hananiah or Hananiah. And we are told Hananiah is a prophet. He is a prophet of God. And what you need to appreciate is that to be a prophet of God, you had to be known as one whom the Lord has spoken through. In other words, this was an identification that was a little bit different than the norm. The people of the land made the identification that he is a prophet. And do you understand what I'm saying? Let me express it this way. Think about the Kohanim, the priest, the priesthood, or, or the Levites. But they were Kohanim because they were sons of Aaron. It was lineage, okay? It was according to the flesh. The Levites, they could serve in the temple. Why? Because they were children of Levi. And God separated that tribe. And so you would be identified specifically through the flesh. You were known this way. It is not so with a prophet. See, to be a prophet, to hold that office, it didn't pertain to any one tribe or even any one family. It simply was the Lord looking down upon man. Who do I want to speak through? Whose heart is humble before me? Who do I want to say my words didn't matter where he's from. He would choose that. And guess what? That man would go out. He would speak the word of the Lord and the people would tremble because guess what? It would come to pass. And that's why when we read in, in the book of Samuel and in, in when, when Samuel the prophet came into town, the people trembled. Do you come peaceably? They were scared to death. They, the people identified the prophets. They were just known. This is critical to the story. If you're going to appreciate the story and the gravity and the weight of it, appreciate this. The people knew the prophets. They knew who they were. Hananiah is known here. Now, let me further put this into context. Look at the setting. Look at the setting of what we have here, just in the first verse. We have a prophet of God speaking to another prophet of God. That is awesome in and of itself. But take it a step further, not just speaking in any place. They're speaking in the most sacred place on planet earth. That is the house of the living God, the temple. If that weren't enough, now we find out just in this first passage, in this first verse, that the audience, they're not just a bunch of commoners or nobodies. Who are they? They're speaking in the presence of the Kohanim, in the presence of priesthood and the people of the living God. I try to imagine that prophet speaking to prophet in the temple of the Lord and the Kohanim, the ones who made intercession on behalf of Israel, the ones, the teachers of the Torah, they taught the law and the people of God. I assure you, in this scenario, every single ear was attentive to what was going down here. They were watching what this prophet was saying to this prophet, Hananiah, what he was saying to Jeremiah. Now, as we move to verse 2, we're going to discover exactly what Hananiah has to say to the prophet Yirmiyahu. This is what we read in verse 2. Thus says Jehovah, Zavot, the God of Israel, saying, I have broken the yoke of the king of Babylon. Okay, so get this. Hananiah is prophesying here in the midst of the Kohanim. He's proclaiming that the Lord has broken the yoke of Babylon, which is simply to say... He's broken his authority. They will not be under his authority or power. Now, here's the thing. If you go on to read in the following chapters, you actually discover that the Lord is going to do that. 
The only problem with it is, is it's not going to be for a very long time. In fact, many of the people are going to be dead before it happens. We're given the actual timetable within the book of Jeremiah. The Lord says, I will complete 70 years. There's 10 sabbatical cycles that will be ushered through. And then that will happen. Not before, which makes what Hananiah is about to tell us very, very interesting. This is what he says in verse 3. Within two full years, I will bring back to this place all the vessels of Jehovah's house that Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, took away from his place and carried to Babylon. Now, this is fascinating. Hananiah not only prophesies that the, that the, 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 the yoke is going to be broken from the king of Babylon that is placed upon everyone, now he gives a timetable. And he's explicit. He doesn't say, ah, it's about, you know, a year and a half. He says, two full years. It's very explicit. Now, there's something you need to appreciate about all this. What Hananiah just conveyed to the crowd was exactly what they wanted to hear. It was exactly what they were craving. It was exactly what they were praying for. Do you understand the gravity of having the articles pillaged in the temple of the living God and taken into a a pagan God's temple and put in there? Do you know what that did to the nation? Do you know how debilitating that is? The very pride and symbol of their power was the temple. The symbol of independence and freedom and liberty was the temple. When the Lord took Israel out of Egypt, he told them, make me a sanctuary that I might dwell among you. Tavach in the Hebrew, within. I want to dwell within you. Such an awesome symbol of power and freedom and redemption. And that had been impeded upon. And this is crippling. Think about today. Let's just put this into context for you. If the White House was to be pillaged, altered, totally altered, and the Constitution burned, how many people would be weeping and crying in this nation? What we would call patriots. And how much would they yearn to hear good news? That our Constitution, it's going to be restored. It is going to happen. The White House will return back to what the forefathers had established. Think about that. Moving on, Hananiah, he's going to bring more good news to his people. In verse 4, we read this. And I will bring back to this place, Yehaniah, or Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, with all the captives of Judah who went to Babylon, says the Lord, for I will break the yoke of the king of Babylon. (laughs) In other words, your entire kingdom is going to be restored to you. Every last word that Hananiah speaks here was exactly what they desired. That they had shed tears for. They longed to be released from the oppressive rule of Babylon. They longed to have their family back. Can you imagine a foreign nation coming in here and ripping up your family and taking them into captivity? How many prayers will you have prayed to bring them back? This is the context. He's telling them everything they've been praying for. This certainly looks on every level to be an answer to prayer. But when you couple the fact that Hananiah told the people exactly what they want to hear, 
And then you couple that with the fact that they know him to be a prophet. And then you add the fact that now he has said, thus says the Lord, what do you have? What are you left with? You're left with the most convincing message you've ever seen. That's what you're left with. It's a message of hope. It's a message of salvation. In fact, I want to show you how powerful this message really was to the point where Jeremiah himself desires to accept it. Look at what is said here in verse 5. We read this. Then the prophet Jeremiah spoke to the prophet Hananiah in the presence of the priest and in the presence of all the people who stood in the house of the Lord. And the prophet Yirmiyahu said, Amen. The Lord do so. The Lord perform your words, which you have prophesied. He confirms it. He wants it. This is Jeremiah's hope. He wants this to come to pass. To bring back the vessels of the Lord's house and all who were carried away captive from Babylon to this place. Amazing to see his response. It would have been the same response that all the people that were gathered in the Lord's house that were crippled emotionally because of what had been happened, what happened to their family members, what happened to their king. Babylon plucked up their king. I mean, they are hurting. It's total devastation. What I want to point out here, despite all the emotions that Jeremiah was feeling, the weight of his desires, know this. He did not give in to those desires, to those emotions. He did not allow emotions to dictate reality. He takes those emotions and he puts them into check. How? Interesting. He takes the entire crowd back to the Torah. And this is what he says in verse 7. Nevertheless, hear now this word that I speak in your hearing and in the hearing of all the people. The prophets who have been before me and before you of old prophesied against many countries and great kingdoms of war and disaster and pestilence. Verse 9. As for the prophet who prophesies of peace, when the word of the prophet comes to pass, the prophet will be known as one whom the Lord has truly sent. Sound familiar? Well, we covered this last week in Deuteronomy 18 where it shows you how to identify a true prophet from a false prophet. It's exactly what Jeremiah says. If a prophet speaks and it happens, it comes to pass. And such as Hananiah, he is is prophesying of peace. It comes to pass, you're a prophet. The Lord has truly spoken through you. Well, how does Hananiah respond to Jeremiah's words? Well, we read this in verse 10. Then Hananiah the prophet took the yoke off the prophet Jeremiah's neck and broke it. And Hananiah spoke in the presence of all the people saying, thus says the Lord, even so I will break the yoke of Nebuchadnezzar king of Babylon from the neck of all nations within the space of two full years. And the prophet Jeremiah went his way. Incredible. So Jeremiah puts this all in check as he should Going to the word of God, going to the Torah. It's interesting. How does Hananiah respond? Does he backpedal? Does he kind of change his tone and go, oh, whoa. Now we're talking about Torah. Now we're actually talking about the legitimate word of God. Maybe maybe it's not going to be two full years. Maybe it'll be sometime in the future. He doesn't do any of that. This prophet, he moves forward. 
And he takes this yoke off of, off of Jeremiah and he breaks it. And then he does something absolutely amazing. He prophesies. He prophesies as he is breaking this yoke and telling them that in two full years, the yoke of Babylon will be broken. Now, you need to appreciate something because everything that these people witnessed, every cell in their body would have told them this is the true prophet of God. Why? Go back to Jeremiah 13. Let's just look at how the Lord works in prophets. The Lord tells Jeremiah in Jeremiah 13, put a linen sash around you. He does this. Now he tell, then the Lord tells him, well, take it off now and go hide it in a rock by the Euphrates. Jeremiah does it. And then he sends Jeremiah back to go get it. He pulls out this sash and it's completely destroyed. It's totally ruined. And then he prophesies. The Lord prophesies through Jeremiah at that time, looking at this ruined sash. And he says, so will I ruin the pride of Yehuda, And I will ruin the great pride of Yerushalayim. This physical manifestation of going through this, this is how the Lord works. The people understand this. Think about 2 Kings 13. Elisha the prophet, a prophet, he goes to the king of Israel, Josh, and says, listen, take a bow and arrow. He takes it. He goes, shoot an arrow at the window. And he goes, you shot the arrow of the Lord's deliverance. Take the remaining arrow, strike the ground. He strikes the ground three times. The Lord will strike Syria three times. You starting to see a pattern here? Of how the prophets move, how the Lord works through prophets. Let's go to the New Testament. In Acts 21, the prophet Agabus, he goes up to the apostle Paul. And what does he do? He strips him of his belt. He binds his hands and his feet. And then he prophesies. And he says, so shall the man who owns his belt be bound by the Jews. And they will deliver him to the Gentiles. Simple point I'm making here. Everything we have seen. Thus far, that the Kohanim are witnessing, that all these men of God are witnessing, completely authentic. It lines up with the way God moves, right? We need to remember that a good counterfeit, I mean a really good counterfeit, it is indistinguishable from the authentic. It looks exactly like the authentic. Make no mistake. The counterfeit gospel looks like the authentic gospel. God's beautiful uh, message of grace, when the devil comes to counterfeit it, it looks exactly like it. You know, I, how many of you have been to a department store? You go to a gas station or wherever, and a person, maybe you, maybe the person in front of you, like I've witnessed, they pull out a 20, a new 20, or they pull out a $100 bill, and they give it to the cashier, and the cashier just kind of looks it over, and then what do they do? Well, they're looking at this $100 bill, but they're not able to tell the difference of whether it's a counterfeit or not. They've been trained to go test it. So what do they do? They grab that little pen, right? We've all seen that, that marker. And they run it across. And as long as the color's right, uh, it's authentic. That is exactly what we are called to do. Because I'm telling you right now, Satan's counterfeit message, his counterfeit gospel of grace that is not true. It's false. Most people can't tell the difference. And they are not trained. They're not testing. They're not trained to test it. What does John say in 1 John? This is what we read. 4.1. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test 
the spirits. I want to be very clear on something. He's not talking about spirits of pagan wickedness. Okay, in the sense of that this is how they're going to present themselves. He's saying these spirits that come to you, their spirits are going to seem righteous, but test them. There's no need to test a pagan demonic spirit. If there is a demon that is to stand right before you, I don't need to test it. You're a demon. It's really simple. It's the ones that come as angels of light and ministers of righteousness. It's the emotions that are in your heart that are so powerful. The most powerful force on planet earth is our emotions. And the deceptions that go in our heart. Heart is deceitful above all things. Jeremiah 17. Right? We must test. You know, you're going to have situations in your life that are going to arise where you're going to think you're receiving a blessing. And something may appear to be to you very, very spiritual. Someone may come to you and, and attempt to speak wonderful news. Good news to you that you want to receive. You are going to have to test it. Every situation we're confronted with, test it. Well, how does this story end? Going back to Jeremiah 28, we read the following now the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah after Hananiah the prophet had broken the yoke from the neck of the prophet Jeremiah, saying, Go and tell Hananiah, saying, Thus says the Lord, You have broken the yokes of wood, but you have made in their place yokes of iron. Verse 14, For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, I have put a yoke on, of iron on the neck of all these nations, that they may serve Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and they shall serve him. I have given him the beast of the field also. Verse 15. Then the prophet Jeremiah said to Hananiah the prophet, Hear now, Hananiah, the Lord has not sent you, but you make this people do what? Trust in a lie. It's a lie. What do false prophets, preachers, teachers do? They get the people to trust in a lie, not any people, God's people. This is what they do. And I'm telling you, unfortunately today, the church is riddled with them. They're crawling everywhere. And people are being seduced and they're embracing lies rather than truths. And these men, they give that message of hope. They prey upon people's emotions. They sound good, they sound right. But in the end is the way of death. They're telling people what they want to hear. Instead of pastors and preachers getting up and giving these fiery messages of repentance and restoration, they give them comfort. Where are the David Wilkerson's of today? Where are the Charles Spurgeon's of today? Where's the Leonard Ravenhill's of today? Far and few between. Jonathan Kahn is one who is going out and preaching a message of repentance before Washington, D.C. I mean, we do have some, but I'm telling you, you look at a whole, it is not a message of conviction. It is a message of comfort. We want to be comforted. The seeker-sensitive thing is plaguing the church. They want to be entertained, not brought into the kingdom. They want their fruit today. They want the reward now, not in the time to come. I want to take you to Jeremiah 7. And I'm just going to share this. Let me preface this. This is one of those passages 
and I think most of you can relate to this, that when you read it, it makes you sit back and you begin to ponder. It's life-changing. It's, it's where you see this book come to life. Right now, as though this book was designed for the age we're living in, the days we're living in. It's so powerful. Look at what this says in Jeremiah 7, verse 8. Behold, you trust in lying words that cannot profit. Will you steal? What is that? Eighth commandment. Murder. Sixth commandment. Commit adultery. Seventh commandment. Swear falsely. Ninth commandment. Burn incense to Baal and walk after gods whom you do not know. First commandment. And the Aseret HaDevarim. And then come and stand before me in this house which is called by my name. Understand the context of this. These people are breaking the commandments of God, but they're not stopping to worship. They're still going to church. They're going to the Lord's house. They're lifting their hands. They're praying to him. They're worshiping him. But the Lord is confused. They're doing this while they have walked away from him. They are breaking his commandments. Now you sitting down because what we're about to read next is going to blow your mind. We are delivered. This is their answer to the Lord. The Lord comes out against them, and here's the answer. We are delivered, not Saul in the Hebrew. We are delivered to do all these abominations. I want you to understand what was just said, and you can read this in the Hebrew. And some of the other translations captivate it a little bit better than the New King James, such as the New American Standard. It literally says, we are delivered that we may do all these abominations. Some translations say we are safe to do all these abominations. Others say we are free to do all these abominations. You want a modern day translation of what it was just said? The response they gave the Lord is said, we're under grace. We are under grace. That is the response to the Lord. The mindset of these people being described here is the very same mindset that is plaguing the church today. I want to tell you guys a story. I once gave a message, this was many years ago, and I think I've told this before, but I'm going to share it again. I once gave a message many years ago, and I was in the book of Romans. And Paul, man, can that guy preach, okay? This guy has got it going on. And I merely, I mean, I was just quoting Romans left and right and tying it in all over to the Old Testament and other parts of the New Testament. It was just, it was really, really powerful. Well, there was visitors that day. And uh, it was a group of guys came and visited us, three, four guys. And one of them came up to me afterward and they said, Daniel, that was, yeah, it was an interesting message. And you already know when people use the term interesting, this is going to go somewhere interesting. Okay. I was like, really? He was like, yeah. He was like, yeah, that's, that's really good. And, and we start dialoguing for about a minute. After that time, he just came right out. And he was smiling. And, and, and the man, he was pleasant. Very, very pleasant man. I'll, I'll tell you that. He came out and he said, Daniel, I feel sorry for you. And I said, why? You know, I'm like, oh boy, what's going on here? He goes, I feel sorry for you because you don't understand you're, you're walking under law. You're, you don't understand what God's grace is. You're, you're not under grace. You're under law. He proceeded to tell me, and because, and, well, let me back up, to which I started rattling off all these scriptures, specifically in the New Testament. 
For not the hearers of the law are just to say that God, but the doers of the law will be justified. Romans 2.13. You go to Romans 3.31. What shall we do after faith has come? Do we make void the law through faith? The million dollar question. Paul says, certainly not. We establish the law. And then you go to Romans 8. You think about that. The carnal mind, the mind of flesh is hatred against God. Why? Romans 8, 7, because it's not subject to the law of God. Okay, so we start rallying off these things and he comes back and this is what he says. He goes, Daniel, I am so sorry. I feel so sorry for you. Do you know that we don't have to keep any commandments? We've been released. Yeshua, Jesus kept all the commandments so we don't have to. This is where he was coming from. And I appreciate that. I didn't, this, is, this wasn't a moment of scoffing. This wasn't a moment of anything but sorrow in my heart, knowing that we can go all the way through the New Testament and Scripture. I can go one Scripture after another, and nothing penetrated. He just kept coming back that. And so I asked him, I said, so are you saying, because I always do this, when you're in a dialogue with someone, ask them for clarity. So are you saying that even the Ten Commandments are no longer valid? And he said, no. No, we've been set free from that. We don't have to do any of that. That is an extreme. Now, I'm giving you an extreme case. That is hardly deceptive in the case of this man going around and proclaiming this type of grace. Because most churches, I will tell you, I, would, I, was, I hope, most churches will run this guy out. They will not tolerate that. That kind of theology. Let me, let me give you one more story. So that you can feel the weight of what is going on and what people are dealing with. And again, it's a story I've told. I was listening to a radio. A guy, he's a pastor. He was a pastor of a local church in the Twin Cities. Um, was actually, actually located. Uh, well, I'm not going to get into that. Anyways, this guy had a radio program. And I just happened to catch the radio program. I was listening to KKMS and uh, I was listening to the radio program. And a caller called in on his show. And she said, she goes, uh, and I'll leave his name out. And she said, uh, so-and-so, um, I'm really struggling. And, and this guy's eloquent, very eloquent. And uh, he said, what's your problem, basically? You know, what's going on? And she said, someone has sinned against me. Someone has sinned against me. And I am struggling to forgive this person. I mean, I am wrestling day and night. And this woman just bore her heart to him. To which he responded, he goes, why are you struggling? The forgiveness, Yeshua already gave that forgiveness so that you don't have to. You do not have to forgive this person. And this is on air. This is not, I'm not making this up. I am telling the truth. You do not have to forgive that person. Never mind the Lord's prayer that we read every Shabbat. Forgive us as we forgive others who transgress against us. Never mind the fact, unless, as you continue, unless you forgive the sins of those who sinned against you, your Father in heaven will not forgive you. Never mind the scripture. Move that aside, because what's being brought is this pseudo-grace. It is the devil's grace. That is what's being brought. And when I hear stuff like that, you want to know what her response was? Thank you. She goes, you have no idea the burden you have lifted off of me. He went in and severed the conviction of godly sorrow that leads to repentance, that produces salvation. He killed it. The enemy came in and killed it. This is what we're up against. Listen to this passage from Ezekiel, which ties into what we're talking about. 
Because with lies you have made the heart of the righteous sad, whom I have not made sad. And you have strengthened the hands of the wicked, so that he does not turn from his wicked way to save his life. And that is exactly what this gentleman did. Strengthened the hand of a woman who was struggling to forgive someone who needed to fight through that battle and make it happen. He released her from that. And he did not give her God's mercy. He must have used the term God's grace 10 times in the midst of that. It was so foul, so deceptive. And what did he do? What do false prophets do? They get you to trust in the lie. They tell you what you want to hear. She wanted to hear that. She did not want to wrestle. She did not want to wrestle. Ezekiel 13.10, going back. Because indeed, because they have seduced my people, saying, peace, when there is no peace, and one builds a wall, and they plaster it with untempered mortar. In other words, one builds the wall, one pastor goes out, and they start saying, you don't need to keep the commandments of God. It's irrelevant. Never mind the scriptures that say the wrath of God comes against the sons of disobedience. Paul says this in multiple times in multiple epistles. Never mind that. No, this is what you grab onto. Come as you are. You're fine. And the people, because they have itching ears, they plaster it with untempered mortar. They support it. They come in. Going back to the very first verse. And the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, prophesy against the prophets of Israel who prophesy. And say to those who prophesy out of their own heart. Hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, woe to the foolish prophets who follow their own spirit and have seen nothing. Moving on to verse 6. They have envisioned futility and false divination. Thus says the Lord, but the Lord has not sent them. Ah, yet they hope that their word might be confirmed. I want you to understand something. And this is something that you have to appreciate. False prophets, I said this last week, they don't come out with name tags that say, hello, I'm a false prophet. They don't graduate from false prophet university. This is what we think. Because they, they, all of a sudden they come, oh, we know where you're from. You graduated the false prophet, you false teacher university. Yeah, we, we know what we think of you. That's where you would be deceived. False prophets, they don't start out as false prophets. They start out as prophets of God. Men who fear God, whom God has moved through, but unfortunately, over time, they jump tracks. And there's so many examples that we could talk about of this reality. Saul, King Saul, anointed. Do we remember what Saul was? He was a prophet. He prophesied among the prophets. And what happened to Saul? He jumped tracks. Judas, Iscariot, an authentic apostle of Yeshua, a true disciple. He went out preaching the kingdom. Do you know that he went out, healed the sick, cleansed the lepers? This is what he did. He cast out demons in the name of Yeshua. And to the point where they're sitting at their Pesach, their, their Passover dinner, and Yeshua says, one of you will betray me. No one knew who it was. They had no idea. The men were asking, is it I? They didn't say, oh, it's obviously Judas, Mr. Moneybox over there. Dipping into the money, but we know exactly who it is. Does that not scare you? When the disciples are dwelling with Judas and they literally do not know who Yeshua is talking about, who's going to betray them to the point they're even asking, is, is it me? 
because he wasn't even on the map. He was out there doing the work of the kingdom. But what did he do? He catered to the emotions and the desires of his flesh, and he gave in. He jumped tracks. Understand something about prophets. Prophets of God, they go forth. The Lord does a mighty work. And think about being put in this position. Man, when I speak, it happens. How empowering is that to your flesh? To know, man, yeah, when I speak, things have, you saw what the Lord did. I just said it and it happened. Can you imagine having to struggle with that? And at some point come and say, you know what? Whatever does come out of my mouth, it's going to happen. That is the state that Hananiah is in. Hananiah is in the state of being right there where his emotions are so overpowering, so strong. And the things that the Lord had probably done with him before were so awesome. The people knew him as a prophet. It all seems just to fall in place. It's so seductive. And so on that level, we need to think about protecting ourselves from not falling in that just because the Lord does awesome works, it doesn't mean you get to dictate reality in the future. We wait upon the Lord. We are constantly, we need to remember this relationship. We are the servants. He is our master. Yeshua is our master. We're going to go back to Jeremiah and we're going to finish this story. Jeremiah 28 verse 16, we read this. Therefore, thus says the Lord, behold, I will cast you from the face of the earth. This year you shall die. Do you know what the penalty for being a false prophet is? Read the Torah. You're going to be killed. And typically the Lord will do it. He'll take it out. And here, (laughs) Jeremiah comes, you're going to die. Why? 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 Because you have taught rebellion against the Lord. You want to know what false prophets do? You want to know that common denominator from generation after generation that they all have in common? It is this one thing. They teach you to walk away from the commandments of God. That's what they do. You think about all the texts of Yeshua saying, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. We're to walk in the light as he is in the light. Thy word is a lamp unto thy feet and a light unto thy path. Think about all these statements. He who abides in him must himself walk as he walked. This is the calling. This is what we are called to do. So after everything that Hananiah prophesied, we find out that in the end, everything that he said, everything that he did, that looked absolutely authentic, It was a product of his own heart. It was a lie. He abused his office of prophet. He fell into an ugly trap. And this is what happens. It's always at the expense of truth. Always at the expense of truth. We're going to close with this passage from Isaiah. This is a rebellious people, a lying children. Who is rebellious and who is a lying child? Children who will not hear The law of the Lord. That is who's rebellious. Now, you go to Proverbs 28, it says very clearly, anyone who rejects from hearing the law, even his prayer, is an abomination. We do not, do not, I'm telling you right now, when people start telling you, you don't need to follow this book, that you don't need to keep the commandments, even though Yeshua says, if you love me, you will keep the commandments. 
do not listen to these people because the truth is not coming out of them. And how do you test them? Right here. You go back to the book. You go back to the word of God. And look at what they say. They say to the seers, do not see. And to the prophets, do not prophesy to us right things. Speak to us smooth things. Prophesy deceits. Tell us what we want to hear. We need it. This is what we crave. And then Paul, the apostle Paul actually grabs this passage and he reiterates it to Timothy in his second letter, chapter four. Pulls right from here. 